morning, Mitchell in the morning, live from camps, we think. We can't tell <laughs> on this end. Good morning, Mr. Powell. It's John Hulsey from here. Good and, morning. And, well, we think we're live. We'll just go, we'll go forward here. It's, uh, we're not getting hey, any feedback at this particular point. Right. And to make things worse, I'm having to look at the pictures of the Minnesota Vikings defense, which I don't care for, as you know. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. I think I'm doing better than you are today. You're kind of under the weather here. This is just one of those uh, one of those things that comes along with with uh, with this time of year. And Mr. Powell is back in studio. We're going to see what we can do. We got some great guests this morning. Mike Mize is going to be here from ADG. It's one of the reasons why that this Maps project and the things that are going on one of the most respected projects in state history. It is. You know, Mike's got a lot of knowledge about uh, all of these different projects, and it's going to be fascinating to learn what's going on. Uh, if, if you don't know, uh, ADG is the company that has been hired by the city to oversee the different MAPS projects that they're doing, uh, not necessarily projects that ADG designed and is uh, working on as architects, but they are the representatives for the city to make sure that the projects are being done correctly, and uh, they're just basic the overseer of the projects. All right, so we'll be talking to Mike at the bottom of the hour. Meantime, let's head back to the studio. We'll get caught up on news and whatnot after the break, but here is our good friend, the sports director from Jacked Up Sports. Here's Kobe Powell. Yeah, good morning. Uh, some interesting news in the uh, Mike Gundy Boone Pickens saga that seems to reemerge every year. Uh, Pickens had some words yesterday. He was asked whether uh, he communicates with Mike Gundy, uh, whether he has conversations with him anymore. Boone Pickens replied, I don't know. Mike doesn't handle people relationships very well, and he gets mad about things. I've heard he's written some notes about me that weren't very complimentary. So that's Boone Pickens yesterday on Mike Gundy. If you'll remember, uh, a while back, I think it was after the 2014 season, uh, whenever Mike Gundy nearly lost his job uh, before he won the OU game and beat Washington in the bowl game, there was some chatter about him losing his job and potentially ending up elsewhere. Uh, and, and at that point in time, Gundy said, I don't need anybody to tell me that they like me or dislike me. I don't really care. I just like to coach my guys and keep playing ball. I don't know what to say. He's old enough to make his own comments now, right? I can't control what he says. So this relationship, this rift that seems to constantly come up between Mike Gundy and Boone Pickens, at some point, this thing's going to come to a head. They don't like each other. Gundy's the head football coach. Uh, Pickens is, I mean, he's the mega donor. He's best friends with Mike Holder. He has a say in what goes on up there. And this is something for Oklahoma State fans to keep an eye on. I'm not, I mean, look, if you're a, if you're a Gundy person, don't, um, don't freak out about this or anything. It doesn't mean Gundy's getting fired at the end of the year, but it does mean that it's something to keep an eye on and just keep tabs on it and see if anything comes of it because you never know when you've got somebody making decisions and they're not getting along with somebody who's in the head coaching position. We see those things all the time. Mark Jackson of the Golden State Warriors was doing a great job with that team and got him in a position to be a really good team, and then he, uh, he got fired. I mean, he got fired because he didn't get along with management he didn't get along with the people who were above him so uh i, I don't think that we're going to see a situation like that with mike gundy at oklahoma state but you never know exactly where these things are going to lead and then the oklahoma city thunder had a scrimmage last night 
you can't learn a ton from a scrimmage. Billy Donovan said they were trying to find their identity. You don't find your identity in a scrimmage in September. It's just something fun for the fans. The guys can go out there, play in front of the fans. It was at John Marshall High School. This is something they do every year. Um, so did you learn anything from this last night? No. Today, all day, people are going to tell you how good DeMontis Sabonis looked. Um, people are going to tell you that, that he's the guy who could potentially be that starting four and be the guy that the Thunder need, and maybe he is, but he's a rookie. We don't know anything about him. We don't know how he's going to fare whenever he gets matched up against a four in the NBA. So don't overreact to what people tell you today about the Thunder scrimmage. I know that with both football teams playing very poorly to start the season, that we're all looking for something and we're hoping the thunder is that something that we can latch onto, and we really want it to be here but just be patient because scott if you overrate if you overreact to a scrimmage then you're going to be that guy who ends up uh, looking foolish in a few months whenever something you said after a scrimmage isn't correct because it was a scrimmage so just calm down on the scrimmage talk and let's wait for the season to get here son of arvada sabonis can you believe that? Now, so he's not going to lead the NBA in scoring this year? Probably not. But, I mean, he's not really our Vetus. He's kind of your Vetus when we talk about Slovenia. Okay. All right. Not ours, theirs. Yes. All right. You know what the Gundy thing is in the T-Boone reminds me of the Jerry Jones-Jimmy Johnson split? I mean, once Jimmy was out, you know, Coach Switzer won the Super Bowl with Jimmy Johnson's team. Let's I mean, let's just be frank here, Okay. I could win a Super Bowl with that team, but let's put it in, not to denigrate what happened in 95, but after Jimmy left, how are they doing? I mean, just think about it. Right, so, not great. So if T-Bone wants to go ahead and meddle in things, and he can, he's got all these, spent all this money and bought himself a university so he can make do whatever he wants. But they start parting ways with the Gundy, just built this program. Mm -mm. Just ask Jerry if he wished he'd uh, kept Jimmy gone. We'll see how this season plays out. It's something to keep an eye on. These, these two are going to... This is going to, something's going to happen here eventually. Sure is. Boone is getting really up there in age, too, yeah. so it might not be long. Might not be long, but uh, you make a move, you may, dare I say, in the name Les Miles. Oh, my God. Yeah. No. That's no, awesome. no chance. No chance. I saw some writer yesterday begging him to get back into the Big 12 and that the best place to go would be Baylor. What do you guys think about that? Um, I mean, I wouldn't come to the Big 12 right now because I don't know if it's going to exist and where my school is going to be in three to five years. But he's got a coach. man's born to coach. He is. All right, Mr. Powell. He'll, he'll find a job. Let's take a quick break. Thank you very much, Kobe J. Powell. We're going to go to a quick break and come back with Holes Financial. Remember, today you listen to Mitchell in the Morning. News Talk 1520 KOKC. Oklahoma City's most powerful news station is News Talk 1520, KOKC. And you hear that music. Uh, and you know what that means. Yep. Time for the Halsey Financial Report, where each week we talk investment and retirement planning concepts with John Halsey of Halsey Financial. You folks that may have Wells Fargo credit cards, we'll be talking to you again at some point this morning. You know, I'm sitting here listening, and I'm, I, I, it sounds like I'm with someone else this week. I'm not with Scott. Yeah, this is a, this is not a retirement planning concept that's settled in my throat. Anyway, you, you folks all know John is a longtime financial advisor, experienced business owner, and he's our neighbor. And today's topic, long-term care annuities. I said that right, long-term yep. care annuities. 
can't say, John, until I was, we started talking about show prep, I've ever heard of those. Well, a lot of people have never heard of them, Scott. Uh, they've only been available since January of 2010. A new law went into effect. And, and part of it came about because of the fact if you have a, a standalone long-term care uh, policy, the premiums are very expensive. Then, you know, the thing about that is if you don't, uh, if you don't use that long-term care policy, then you lose it. You've paid in all these premiums over the years, and you get nothing out of it. So that's what brought about the changes in the laws. Enter the long-term care annuity. So it's kind of like the what the old term insurance, where the only people that get to celebrate if you collect is when you're dead. <laughs> well, in this case, you get to use it. Okay, that's then that's a little better. It you know? is okay. So, what is the long-term care annuity specifically, John? Well, actually, it's a hybrid product. It's kind of a marriage between a traditional deferred annuity and a standalone long-term care policy, like you're accustomed to. You can use the proceeds, the benefits, the, the monthly payments that come out of the uh, annuity to pay for your long-term care expenses. Now, one thing about it is it has to be done with after-tax money, taxable money. It cannot be done with your money out of your IRA or your 401K. can't be done with qualified money. And... If you don't use uh, the long-term care benefit, then you've got just a traditional annuity that can help fund your retirement. Using that word, how is it funded? Well, it is funded usually in general by a lump sum, one-time payment, or it actually can be done with a series of premium payments. Most people don't, but it can be done. There's other alternatives, too, because of this law that went into effect in 2010. You can actually do an exchange from a traditional annuity into a long-term care annuity. You can do an exchange. When I say exchange, I'm talking about a 1035 exchange uh, with cash value life insurance into a long-term care annuity. Uh, And as I said earlier, the benefits are generally paid on a monthly basis. The thing about it is... There is a fee for this product. It's a rider on a traditional annuity, so there's a fee for the rider. All right, so how does this annuity work? Well, just like a standard long-term care uh, policy, you're going to have the same qualifications for the requirements uh, to be able to uh, sign up for this thing. But the beauty to this is it's easier to qualify than it is on a uh, standalone policy. The thing is, you don't have to answer any questions at or all you have are questions. You don't have to have do a physical. Let's put it that way. If you've got a standalone policy, they're pretty rigid requirements to qualify. It's much easier with a long-term care annuity than it is with a standalone. Now, to be eligible. For the benefits to receive the payments, you're going to have to suffer from uh, either cognitive or mental incapacity, which is true for t- traditional policy, or uh, you can qualify by not being able to perform uh, 
two of what's called the Activities of Daily Livings, ADLs, two two of the uh, six. If you can't do two of them, then you can qualify for it. And they all have a waiting period. Uh, Depending upon the policy, you may have to wait 30 days once you qualify, up to two years. Let's talk about taxes, how that affects this new product. Same story. The law in 2010 changed everything on this. Generally speaking, uh, there are no income taxes at all on the benefits from a long-term care annuity, okay, which is as long as it's used for long-term care expenses. Now, this applies only to long-term care annuities. It doesn't apply to a traditional or a regular annuity. All right, so I'm looking at some of these hurdles that I would get to to do one of these new products. What are the pros and cons when I'm getting ready to decide with you about doing one of these? All right, let's talk about the pros first. Uh, As I just said, you've got tax-free withdrawals as long as those withdrawals, those benefits are used for long-term care expenses. Uh, which is unlike a traditional policy. A traditional policy, it's going to be taxable. Um, This is something that is not a use it or lose it uh, product. If you don't use it for long-term care, then you have a traditional annuity that you can use the benefits on it, okay? Uh, Another pro, generally it's easier to qualify for this type of policy than it is a traditional standalone policy. Uh, here's another change. Once you fund it, if you put in a lump sum, you don't have to make payments. It, you know, a traditional long-term care policy, you're making a monthly or quarterly premium payment for the rest of your life. You don't have to do that with this. That's that's the beauty to it. Now, let's talk about the cons. I have to get the cons in here because I'm working with a compliance department from you know where, so I got to get every con in. Where you go when you're where you go when you're bad? <laughs> That's the sort of compliance we're doing. I'm yeah. just kidding, but there are some downsides to it. Definitely, absolutely, there are some downsides. Uh, the long-term care annuities have surrender charges. Well, duh, that's just like every other annuity. They all have surrender charges. Uh, the second con is. They do not qualify as a partnership plan. So you're going to say, what the heck's a partnership plan? Well, that's what the heck is a partnership plan? <laughs> that, that came out of the new law in 2010 also. A partnership plan is where you have a traditional long-term care policy that's considered a partnership policy with Medicaid. And if it is a partnership uh, policy, then you have some asset protection. If you may recall, with Medicaid to qualify, you got to spend your assets down to like two thousand dollars or something like this. If you got a partnership plan, you don't have to do that. This is not. You cannot do that with an annuity. Uh, they have a fee. That's another con. It's a rider, uh, anywhere from four tenths of a percent to one and a quarter percent. Uh, something else we talked about. You can't take a, a, a medical tax deduction based upon the IRS like you can a standalone policy. If you're making those monthly payments, a portion of it is tax deductible subject to the IRS rules. Not with this because it's a lump sum payment. Yeah, we wouldn't want to give them a deduction for taking a giant sum and putting into one of these, right? Right. I mean, for heaven's sake. That's right. Uh, if you don't... De- deposit enough funds in in the beginning, then you might not have enough uh, 
funds to cover your long-term care expenses. Generally, it's going to take about $50,000 to do that. Okay. Well, that's a chunk of change. Yeah, it is. So it is. The, the only way to know what you want to do on this, way, uh, again, way too many moving parts. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to determine if a long-term care annuity is right for you, you need to come see me. We'll sit down, we'll work this thing out, and we'll figure out if it is right for you. All right, so many people are having to look into long-term care. This is one of those things you're going to have to consider in the way that you do this. Part because of knowledge, yeah, Because knowledge is power, right? right? Right. And gives you control, as John always says, in your retirement years. And now we're talking about something that's sure enough in the middle of your retirement years, medical expenses. So here's yep. what you do. He's going to work hard to protect you, but you got to pick up the phone and call him. 840-810. Let's back this up. Because you may be on pseudofedrin like I am right now. 810-1777. That's John Halsey at 405-810-1777. Halsey Financial is on the web at HalseyFinancial.com and on Twitter and Facebook at HF Report. So glad to have uh, that information this morning. And we're rocking along here about 628. I'm wondering, how many decisions about long-term care are you, when you're dealing with these clients, it's such an imposing amount of money that has to be spent in your later years on medical. And we hear people talk about, hey, most of the money spent the last months of your life. Is this, when you're working with clients, is this the big elephant in the room? It always is, Scott. People don't realize what the expenses are going to be health care-wise once they retire. And we're talking about later in retirement, generally not early in retirement. Uh, even if you have Medicare, the expense is enormous, and it just keeps going up and up and up, and you got to plan for it. You've got to take that into account. Oh, I thought everything was fixed. <laughs> you know, we just really should quit beating a dead horse. It's yeah. just like our health policy in Oklahoma. It's a crashed train, you know. Yes. Not one of Warren's, which are all running on time this morning. Right. But this is something that you definitely are going to have to look into for your retirement years because sooner or later, the old body starts breaking down. It does. Maybe on next Halsey, we'll talk about those six items that you've got to qualify. That's a good, we'll that's a talk good about idea. That. Yeah, we can do that. All right. Well, what's left of Scott Mitchell is joined by John Halsey and Mike Myers. You all know who Mike Myers is. We got him this morning. Yeah, we do. Lucky us. We'll be right back. Holding the power brokers accountable. Mitchell in the morning. News Talk 1520 KOKC. You're listening to the strongest station on the dial. News Talk 1520 KOKC. Good morning. Welcome back to Mitchell in the morning. Colby Powell here back in studio. Time to get caught up on sports. There is a game in the NFL tomorrow night between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Miami Dolphins. And usually around week four, you start to see teams with desperation start playing and and you look at these teams and you want to pick a team that is playing with desperation the problem is both these teams come in at one and two neither team i think necessarily expected to be one and two or is happy with one and two of course the dolphins did play the seahawks and the patriots in weeks one and two both very close games they wish they could have snuck one of those out but then their performance against the browns in week three was absolutely pathetic and made the dolphins really look like one of the worst teams in the nfl Ryan Tannehill, and if you'll remember, Ryan Tannehill is the quarterback who's always been correlated with Brandon Whedon because they were taken in the same draft. Uh, Tannehill was taken ahead of Whedon, and, and it'd be interesting 
I would love to see where those two quarterbacks would be had they been drafted in the opposite situation. Had Tannehill gone to Cleveland and Whedon gone to Miami, I think that they would have similar careers. I think that Whedon would go on the trajectory Tannehill has, and I think Tannehill would go on the trajectory Whedon has. All this to say, Ryan Tannehill's not a very good quarterback. You watch that game on Sunday, and, you know, I've watched Ryan Tannehill and he'll have a good game occasionally, but but you watch him and he just has no pocket presence. He can't feel the rush around him. He doesn't know when to step up. All those things, I mean, you're seeing guys like Carson Wentz and Dak Prescott. I mean, rookies. You're seeing all the things that these guys are doing, even Trevor Simeon. And Ryan Tannehill, he doesn't have it. He just does not have it. If you're a Dolphins fan, he's not your guy. It's going to be a while before you got a team that's successful again because the problem with Miami is they're just successful enough they win just enough games that they can't get a high enough draft pick to get a better quarterback or to get really elite talent in there in Miami. And they've got what should be a fairly good defense with Ndamukong Sue, Mario Williams. They've got some players on the back end there in Miami, but they haven't fared very well on defense either. They, they let Cleveland move the ball on them pretty good. They let uh, Terrell Pryor run wild on them. And if not for a missed field goal, if not for really three missed field goals by Cody Parkey, who was signed off the street for the Cleveland Browns. He missed a field goal as time expired and the Dolphins ended up winning in overtime on a busted coverage by uh, by Cleveland. Otherwise, Miami loses that game. And that, that should have been the most surefire game of the week was Miami over Cleveland. So tomorrow, Cincinnati and Miami, both teams are desperate. I love Cincinnati in that game. Love, love, love Cincinnati. On Thursday night games, usually the the better franchise the team that knows how to have success uh, is going to be more successful on a thursday night game because you've got three days to put a game plan into play you don't have a ton of time to prepare for your opponent and usually the team who is is just a better franchise a better run organization is going to win those thursday night games and that's the cincinnati Bengals. i love cincinnati tomorrow scott that means high up potentate right (laughs) yeah i think that uh, i think that they're going to handle the dolphins pretty well nothing it just sounds good (laughs) all right mr pal thank you very much i can't think of anything i'd rather not see on a thursday night of the miami flippers (laughs) <laughs> what a horrible franchise you know who killed that franchise don shula remember that year kobe was probably not around but they went they started buying up every free agent in town no and, i remember the year they went 17 and 0 well i do well you know what that makes you that makes dolphin fans very very old <laughs> that would be me yeah in fact most of those guys have been over to Hulsey to uh, get one of those new long-term care deals those guys are really old and some oklahomans on those teams well Thank you, Mr. Powell. We're back at Camps 1910, John Hulsey. We're joined by one of the principals at ADG, Mike Myers. And here's the thing about Mike Myers, and you jump in on this, Mr. Hulsey. Yes, sir. The way that these projects are run is impeccable in the integrity that exists. There's never been any question about how these things would proceed. And welcome to Mitchell Morning, Mr. Myers. Thanks, Scott. John, really a pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. Glad to have you here. This is going to be exciting. This is going to be fun. Um, I just saw a story that was sent to me by my executive producer, who I sleep with, by the way, back at the house. Wow. <laughs> mother of my children. <laughs> oh. And she was sending me this story about there's going to be a drone study set uh, out at the legislature today. We've got a lot of friends are into drones. Kent Jones or KOMA flies drones, and, and uh, a lot of people do that. Do you, have you ever used in the projects you're doing, because some of those projects are tall, you guys at ADG 
use drones? We don't actually use them ourselves, but we're on a number of projects where the consultants and the contractors use them uh, really to, to great success and to great benefit. Um, projects like the uh, uh, Fairgrounds uh, Exposition Center, which is nearing completion right now, um, one of the great things about these drones and, and using them during the construction process is that you can start them in a location um, as construction is just beginning and have them fly a certain route, record that route, and then on a regular basis, whether you want to do it daily, weekly, monthly, whatever, have the drone fly that, um, that particular route which shows uh, progression of, of uh, construction on the site as it's actually happening. There are other people who are actually using them for inspections. You said some of these buildings are pretty high. Um, you can actually use them. Most of them have very high definition cameras and they're, uh, uh, you're able to get up and see things that you would have to get into a, a crane or a man lift to see um, and record uh, what's actually happened up there in, in the construction process. Wow, that, that is fantastic. I'd like to have one that would go in front of my car with a radar detector. Just, uh, I wonder how fast they can fly. <laughs> Jackie Gleason had that. There'd have been a Smokey and the Bandit 4 with drones. You know how that would work. Tell us a little bit about ADG, Mike Mines. Uh, ADG's been in business in Oklahoma City for just over 40 years, and we just celebrated that 40th anniversary. Um, the company really got started as an interior design firm with uh, just three folks uh, involved in the firm. Uh, we're currently up to 70. Uh, but the firm went from being an interior design firm to doing uh, full-service architecture um, and has been involved in a, a lot of projects in the Oklahoma City area. Um, we've just recently added uh, mechanical, electrical engineering, and civil engineering. And uh, I head uh, a division of the company that is responsible for program management, which is really owner's representation. We, we work with people like the city of Oklahoma City, the Oklahoma City Public Schools, city of Norman, Norman schools to help them manage large capital improvement projects such as uh, MAPS 3. But you know, on the architecture side, uh, not a lot of people know, but we, we were the designers on the original ballpark, on the, the original MAPS project, the first MAPS project completed. So we've got a really long and, and great history with MAPS and, and with the city. So. Well, we're visiting with Mike Myers, what's left of my voice, John Halsey. We'll learn a little bit what's going on with those projects. All I know is that I've been to many of those citizens' committees that hand look at those different projects. Anybody has any sort of nervousness or they're not really sure when Mike Myers walks in the room, everybody, oh, everything's fine. That's how that works. Yeah, absolutely. He's like a legitimate Winston Wolf. Yeah, everything's fine. Mike Myers is here. He'll be back with us. Right after this break, it's Mitchell in the Morning, KOKC. Facebook Mitchell in the Morning to connect to the latest. News Talk 1520, KOKC. Oklahoma City's most powerful news station is News Talk 1520, KOKC. It's Mike Myers and John Halsey, Mike Myers, principal at ADG, who owner representation. That's interesting. I mean, you're watching out for the owners who are the citizens of Oklahoma City. 
uh, for the city of Oklahoma City. Yeah, really, that's that's the responsibility that that we feel. It's a it's a big responsibility. I mean, the um, the the city asks us to help them out in managing these projects, which means that we get involved in um, uh, some of the the architect selection, the uh, review of uh, architectural plans at various stages during the plan. And then we also spend a significant amount of time out on site as construction's underway. And the interesting thing about this, we talk about this a lot in the field of public policy and government. You can't believe how many people will hire, will try to manage these projects for themselves. And they may be great, brilliant businessmen and women, but they don't know squat about communications or they don't know squat about air conditioning systems. And it is amazing how the sharks can find those people. I mean, if you're ignorant about one thing, Gary John, we, we, so much of the stuff that we do, we get into projects, we go, you need to fire these people. Oh, I didn't know. And you're talking about brilliant people. That's what you do is you keep the taxpayers on this project from getting hammered or getting some getting shortchanged on a project, in essence. Yeah, and, and that's part of the reason we're there. But, I mean, you know, for the most part, the, the architecture and engineering consultants and the contractors that we use have really been very straightforward, but <clears throat> these projects are incredibly complicated. Um, you know, we, we at ADG also do architecture, and we're the first to admit that, and actually John's daughter is, is an architect at ADG, yeah. with, who, who we're really happy to, to have as part of our team. Well, he raised her up, right? <laughs> he did. Yeah. He did, absolutely. <laughs> um, but uh, we're the first to admit there's no perfect set of plans. I mean... We just received a set of plans for the, uh, uh, the construction of the, the streetcar. Um, it is literally a thousand sheets of drawings and about 1,200 sheets of written specifications. Um, you can't do all that work without having some kinds of conflicts or missing something. And part of what we do is try to help make sure that that is minimized. Um, both during the design process and that everything gets coordinated during construction. Is that for the maintenance building or is that for laying the rails? Um, that that set of plans is for is actually for laying the rails. That's just for laying the rails. Yeah, I mean wow. it's it is incredibly complicated. I mean you you just you look at the end result and you go, well that can't be all that difficult. Um, the amount of effort that goes into that in terms of calculating um, the the turning radius and um, when you get into an existing street, when you're doing uh, a rail project like this, you can't have more than a 2% differential between the tops of the two rails because the, otherwise the car would, would uh, uh, theoretically lean too much. If you think about existing streets, they all have a big crown. Yep. It's more than a 2% grade. So you not only have to deal with the track, you have to deal with um, getting into the existing pavement and making sure that it still slopes properly to drain and, and do a lot of those things. Plus, there's some very sophisticated signalization that is happening with respect to how the streetcar interacts with traffic at some uh, some of the intersections that it'll be it'll be uh, going on. We've asked Kathy O'Connor several times, are these going to be steam engines? <laughs> Because you know, we'd really like to hear those horns, those steam engines. John, John and I are old enough to remember that, but no, these these are <laughs> these are electric cars, um, and for a little bit more than half of the route, they will actually be running on internal batteries 
that get charged uh, when they get back on the overhead wires um, that'll be uh, situated throughout the city uh, along the route. You know, a couple of years ago, you'll remember, Scott, I went to uh, Prague. They have an incredible streetcar system in Prague. They do. Uh, it's amazing, and, and all the different types of cars that they have, and it just it's a seamless operation with vehicles. I was amazed. I thought, man, this is going to be like bumper cars. Not at all. No, and you're, you're absolutely right. And it's going to take, you know, the people in Oklahoma City a little while to figure that out. I mean, they, they view the streetcar right now as a possible impediment. But it really, it's no different than a bus. I mean, right. it, it runs with traffic. It makes occasional stops. But for the most part, a streetcar operates just like any other vehicle in the street. So it, it, it'll take a while to get used to, but I think people are going to discover that it's going to be a real benefit to downtown and, and midtown. That's awesome. I want to hear some more of the updates on the MAPS project you guys are involved in. But first, got to say, <coughs> I attended your open house last week of your new facility over there, your new offices that are part of 21C uh, Hotel. Absolutely gorgeous. That is a beautiful facility you have. You need to be very proud of what you've got there. John, we really are very proud of it. And we're, we're really very fortunate to have had the opportunity to uh, move our offices to uh, the, the old Fred Jones Manufacturing Building, which is, yeah. as you said, is currently the home to 21C. And for anyone who hasn't been to 21C, um, you need to go. The, they call it a museum hotel. And with real cause. I mean, it is the, the there's a tremendous amount of really different and interesting artwork in there. And if you walk in and you tell them you just want a tour, they'll give you a tour of it. But it's also got a great restaurant, um, which this week is, I mean, I sound like an ad for 21C. This week they're serving dinner and breakfast. Next week they start serving lunch. I know that because it means I can now walk over there for lunch. But when we did our space uh, in the building, we really tried to honor the uh, original intent of the building. Um, we're in a very large open space. We um, There are uh, places, that, the columns, for example, where we didn't do anything to paint them. And, and you can see the, the remnants of about six different paint jobs on them. But um, the <coughs> fact of the matter is it's a, it's a very open and workable space for us. It's a huge departure from what we had before this. We're really glad to be there. Yeah, it's neat what you can do with a 100-year-old manufacturing facility. You know, it's just incredible. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. It's better than Detroit where they're 100. They've been abandoned for 100 years. <laughs> you can walk over. You, you're walking distance from Sunnyside Diner. Uh, Sunnyside Diner and Stone Cloud Brewery, which will be in that same building as well. Oh, yeah, gets you a pancake and a six-pack. <laughs> well, well, to me, even more importantly, Joey's, Joey's Cafe, is it? Right down you the street. Oh, yeah, Joey's Pizza. Yeah. Joey's Pizza. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, that's good pizza. That's a pretty good anchor, that uh, building down there. We're seeing a lot of development in that end of town. There's going to be a tremendous amount of development. The Hall family's made a, a huge commitment to the, the area immediately surrounding the building and has plans for uh, multifamily residential in that area. And I, I think just the fact that 21C took that plunge and, and is – has opened and is successful has spurred a lot of other development 
including the old Sunshine Laundry building, um, which has sat abandoned for, I mean, I think it's been, I, I've been here for 35 years. So I think it's been abandoned pretty much that long. But that development is, is going to be another uh, big change to that area. We just need that state question to pass in November. Which one is that? What's the number on that one, Scott? The alcohol where they can actually sell? Uh, it's 792, I believe. 792? Yeah. But there are so many. That, that, like that Robertson still building down there on that end of town, I think it's been empty for 30. My dad worked at that thing. It looks like it's a movie set. Yeah. So th- we're going to see a lot of things happening on that end of town. Absolutely. I, I think that that is going to be the new growth area. And um, the, the great thing is that right now it appears that Oklahoma City can sustain that kind of growth. I mean, this is just a remarkable time to be living in Oklahoma City. Hey, Mike, tell us about um, the housing that you guys are doing at OU. Oh, yeah, we, we have we were – uh, fortunate enough to be selected to be the architects for the new residential college um, at OU, which is just south of the stadium. And and uh, uh, if you if you're down there, you'll see that it is well under construction. It's expect, expected to be uh, open for school uh, next year. Um, it's a totally different concept in housing for OU, and something that David Boren. Uh, is really proud of and we are as well. Gaddy's moving in down there for a year. We'll, really? we'll talk about that up so okay. it's an interesting deal. We got more of Mike Mize and then we're going to be joined in this next hour by Aaron Brillbeck and meet somebody that's a friend, Maria Rosales. Be right back. Sometimes the news, you can't make this stuff up. Okay? Isn't that white plastic? Wouldn't that be roughage? <laughs> Everybody that, needs fiber. Is that fiber? <laughs> How would you know? With well, apologies to Ronald McDonald, but holy Moses. Glad to have you back. It's Mitchell in the Morning live from camps with John Halsey, Mike Myers. Coming up, we'll get Mr. Brillbeck on set, Maria Rosales-Lambert who is a forensic interviewer. We're going to learn about what they do for kids and investigations and how you can help. And uh, good morning. Good morning. Mr. Lambert. Thank good you to for see having you. me here. We thought we'd get, uh, while we still had Mike here, we'd get a little bit of an update on MAPS projects. We uh, are seeing some things happen really suddenly. There was commercial earlier on the program with the Whitewater Rapids thing. How many total projects are you managing, Mike? Right now there are eight. I mean, seven separate uh, groups of projects, but um, there are, I mean, one, two, four different uh, trails projects um, and four different sidewalks projects that are that are going on. Um, and uh, the, you, I want to talk briefly about the Whitewater. That's a project that's complete. That's going to be a real game changer for the city of Oklahoma City. The the uh, attendance that they've seen there since they've opened has exceeded their expectations um, I went to the one in Charlotte North Carolina about five years ago to, to see what they were doing and it's a very successful project but this is a, a much better planned and conceived project and the fact that it is with literally within walking distance of downtown um, that you can go from being in a whitewater raft to being in a flat water um, a canoe or kayak uh, on the river makes this just an incredible sight and uh, a, a real draw for uh, not only professional athletes but 
people who just want to have a great time uh, rafting or uh, on that uh, facility. And I'm, I'm going to suggest that if you haven't been down there, you need to go down and, and try it. It is just a remarkable adventure. But, but uh, you know, we've got a bunch of sidewalk projects underway right now. The convention center is in the process of being designed. Um, we just released some uh, uh, new renderings of that last week. Um, the exposition center out at the fairgrounds um, is nearing completion. That'll be one of the largest venues in Oklahoma City. Um, it's multi-purpose. It's not just for horses and, and trade shows. Um, they'll be able to break that down and use it for a number of different kinds of events. Uh, one of the first senior wellness center is scheduled to open in January in Northwest Oklahoma City. The second one is under construction uh, adjacent to Capitol Hill High School. Um, the streetcar um, is uh, getting ready to bid for all of the track work. Uh, the maintenance facility for that is currently under construction. So we've got just a tremendous amount going on. And, I think the people of Oklahoma City are pretty excited that we've completed one one of the uh, major projects in the Whitewater, but we've got, uh, and, and I forgot to mention the downtown park. The construction on that new downtown park is scheduled to begin uh, later this year. And the hotel's been announced, correct? I mean, yeah, the hotel's really not a, a, a MAPS project, but because it's adjacent to the convention center, it's really an integral part of the future success of that convention center. And uh, John, the Senior Wellness Center actually accommodates cars who have their left blinker on all the time. <laughs> Every time I drive by there, for some reason, my yeah. car keeps wanting to just Yeah, left-hand turn. Yeah, that's John Glenn. We went back to space, had the left blinker on the whole time yeah. he was out there. These are magnificent projects, and I would just say that the ADG's management of this has given so many people green light. You know it's being done with integrity. You know it's being done correctly. And, uh, man, it's just good to see you. And I, I think that this is a great success story. People don't tell you that enough because I know you're busy. And you, you make all of those meetings, those citizen subcommittees, which is an unbelievable aspect of this that has also been yes. one of the reasons for the confidence in these projects. Well, I, you, you know, yeah, we're, we're really happy to be a part of that. But the real credit goes to the citizens of Oklahoma City who continued to vote in that one cent sales tax to really improve the quality of life for people in Oklahoma City and to the city leaders who've had the vision to understand which projects we need and are going to have the biggest impact. So, um, you know, I said before, it's a great time to be living in Oklahoma City and uh, MAPS is one of the reasons that it is. You're right. Have you had the uh, pancakes at Sunnyside? I haven't had the pancakes. I've had lunch there a couple times. Oh man, you got to have the pancakes. Well, I could, I yeah. could, I, I've seen the pancakes come out at, at, at there, and I could eat maybe one. Oh, uh, they look like <laughs> they look really? like rims on a '80 Chevelle or something. <laughs> they're, they're giant. And Chef Alley, who runs that, also is involved with the right over here, the restaurant over here on Ninth Street, Hillbillies. It's great stuff. You got to try that. It is. We uh, we actually taught them how to. We were there very early, and said, you got a hot syrup in there. I'm not sure. We said, well, here's how you do it. Hot water, put the syrup in there, and then take your pancakes and go over to the, what is the, the craft beer that's going to be opening up down there? Well, in the old Sunshine Laundry, Stone Cloud Brewery is, is going to open up really soon. Wow. 
There's your carb fest right Boy, there. Yeah, is, isn't it? <laughs> All right. It's always great to see you, Mike Myers. We appreciate the opportunity to be here. Always good to see John and Scott. Thanks for the opportunity. It's great to see you. All right, come back again soon. We want to want to learn more about that choo-choo. Okay. You think we could get a r- early ride, test oh, ride? That would be great, wouldn't it? John, he, uh, Mike would probably just put me on a string and drag me along there. <laughs> the only thing I would add would be if we could get like a loudspeaker and make steam engine noises as it's going down. I'm, I'm telling you, somebody would sponsor that. All right. Come back with Halsey Finance when we get back. And Maria Rosales-Lambert joins us. And Aaron Brielbeck. Be right back. At Mitchell Talks to tweet your comments to the show. Mitchell in the morning. News Talk 1520. KOKC. Oklahoma City's most powerful news station is News Talk 1520, KOKC. And now, Halsey Financial Report, which we we talk investment and retirement planning concepts with John Halsey of Halsey Financial. He's here every week, longtime financial advisor, experienced business owner. He's our neighbor. And last time we talked long-term care annuities, a new option uh, that's available out there to your clients. And uh, it's, it's relatively new, but tell us about them, John. Well, Scott, there was a law that was passed and went into effect in January of 2010 that changed up a lot about long-term care. There had been a lot of complaints about the standalone long-term care policies as the premiums being very expensive. And not only were they expensive or are expensive, but if you don't use that policy, then you lose it, and you lose all that money that you've put into it. So what's happened is they passed this law which created, for lack of a better term, a long-term care annuity. And you told us this is a hybrid. It's brand new. and uh, But there are some goods, good sides, upsides, and downsides to this. But give us some specificity on what it is. Okay. <clears throat> A long-term care annuity is uh, a hybrid product, just like you said. It's a marriage between a standalone long-term care traditional policy and a traditional annuity. Now, you have to fund this with what I would call after-tax money. It cannot be done with what is called qualified monies or retirement monies. It can't be done through your IRA or it can't be done through a 401K, something like that. But one of the beauties to it is if you don't use the long-term care aspects, you have a traditional uh, annuity. You can use the benefits to, to fund your retirement from this if, you don't use it, if you're not using it for long-term care. Tell us how it's funded and how it works, John. Well, in general, it's just like a traditional regular annuity. Most people put in a lump sum. But you can put in a series of of premium payments if you want to do that, okay? There's other ways to fund it also uh, through what's called 1035 exchanges. You can actually exchange a traditional annuity if you have one uh, for one of these long-term care annuities. Or you could uh, exchange cash-valued life insurance for a long-term care annuity. Uh, If you're doing the... A traditional annuity into a long-term care annuity, you need to be aware there's surrender charges, so you've got to make sure it's mature, and there's a lot of details you need to look at. Uh, benefits from these policies, they're generally paid monthly to help pay for the long-term care expenses, 
And like any other rider with any other annuity, there's a fee involved. Can you talk about qualifications, how you do that? Yeah, the, uh, this is basically the same as a long-term care uh, standalone policy. you got to qualify. The difference is uh, it's easier to qualify. Uh, all you have to do is answer some questions. You don't have to take a physical, so that makes it much easier uh, to qualify. Uh, to be eligible to receive the benefits, basically just like a traditional long-term care policy, you got, you're going to have to be suffering from either a cognitive or mental uh, uh, incapacity or, or uh, not be able to perform at least two of the six activities of daily living, which... Those are ADLs. What ADL, are the six? ADLs, there are six of them. One is feeding, being able to eat. Uh, one is bathing, and, and this doing it yourself without help, okay? Uh, one is dressing, get up in the morning and get dressed. One's transferring. What's transferring? Getting out of bed. Can you do that? Get out of a chair by yourself. Continence and, and using the toilet. Those are the six uh, different ADLs. And a waiting period on these? Yeah, you have a waiting period, an elimination period. Uh, depending upon the policy, it's anywhere from 30 days to two years. What are the uh, tax impact on this? Well, due to this law and, and that was passed in 2010, generally speaking, there's no income tax on these benefits as long as it's used to pay for long-term care expenses. Now, remember, this is only applies to a long-term care annuity doesn't apply to a regular or traditional annuity all right let's get to the bottom line a long-term care annuity what's the upside what are the downsides well here's the pros uh tax-free withdrawals if it's used for long-term care expenses uh, unlike a traditional long-term care policy this is not a use it or lose it proposition you still have an annuity with the benefits there if you're not using it for long-term care uh, generally speaking, it's easier to qualify for one of these than it is a, a standalone policy. Uh, once you have it funded, you don't have to make payments like you do with a uh, traditional long-term care policy. You're not making any kind of monthly payments. Now, for the con side, uh, there's a number of them, obviously. Long-term care annuities, just like any annuity, has traditional surrender charges over, over a period of time. Uh, they do not qualify as partnership plans. If you don't know what a partnership plan is, that's part of this 2010 law that helps people that are trying to qualify for Medicaid to protect some of their assets so they don't have to spend them all down. Uh, they have a fee. It's a rider. There's a charge for it. It's anywhere from four-tenths of one percent up to one-quarter percent. Uh, another downside is if you're doing a traditional long-term care policy uh, based upon IRS rules and limitations, there are tax deductions available, not with a long-term care annuity, just with a traditional long-term care policy. And I guess the biggest one is if you don't fund it with enough money in the beginning, there might not be enough benefit to cover your long-term care uh expenses so you have to look at it from that perspective too so bottom line is to determine if a long-term care annuity is right for you and it's not right for everyone come see me we'll sit down and figure this out and and see if it is right for you 
In other words, in other words, if you can't hear me very well, you should be thinking about a long-term care annuity. I'm thinking you're going to need it yeah, shortly. I think probably so. Now, this is one another one of those services of Halsey Financial. You want to talk to Halsey Financial, you better give them a call at 405-810-1777, 405-810-1777. HalseyFinancial.com is on the web at, guess what, Halsey Financial. At HF Reports, HF Reports on Facebook and Twitter. And once again, John Halsey, 810-1777. And we usually, about 7.30 on Wednesdays, will, if you're following Mitchell in the morning, at Mitchell Talks on Twitter, you can see what John Halsey's been up to because we, we retweet on Wednesdays and whenever good information comes across. We're back at camps. It is about... Um, 24 after the air. Aaron Brilbeck's joining us next. We've got Maria Rosales-Lambert of the Oklahoma Interview Services. we got to wake him up over here. Yeah, he's over here. Is he carb-festing over there? <laughs> Good uh, morning, Mrs. Lambert. I want you to meet Aaron Brilbeck from News 9, the guy who's really kind of altered, well, not kind of, has altered the way news is covered at the Capitol, which we appreciate very, very much. You're too kind. Well, we noticed that when you interview people, that stupid seems to fall out of their mouth a lot. And, you know, at, at some point, the, the public policy folks are going to understand that we in Oklahoma have moved into the 21st century. For the longest amount of time, the only thing that came out of the Capitol was print, mm-hmm. nothing else. Which the reason I kept asking Mike Mize about steam engines is because some of the reporting on the Capitol was from an era where that there were steam trains. That's about that, and this has changed. And so the over and under on. Stupid things falling out of people's mouths, Mr. Brubeck, when you interview them, is it like 50%. You've worked in cities that, in state capitals, where they were big league press. Not that they're not great press folks in this state, but whenever that you have a situation where that a television station hadn't been embedded in the capital in a century, or in this century, that's a little backwards. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, this is, it's becoming a growing trend. Uh, more and more I'm seeing broadcasters both radio and television pulling uh pulling the reporters out of state capitals uh too many of the news directors believe that it's just too dry for the average person and i think that we proved this past year that folks are really into politics here in oklahoma city uh they care about where their money is being spent how it's being spent uh, they care about who's leading or in many cases not leading the state uh, and that, that's what we're trying to get across to people and let them make their own informed decisions. And I, I, I think, I think we things. need to have more car wrecks out there at the Capitol. That, yeah. that would spice it up a little bit and get, get you on the air more. You could get some other stations to cover it. Yeah. You get a car well, wreck and a fire. That, that's what I'd like to see, though. I'd like to see other stations up at the Capitol regularly. I'd like to see them embed other reporters up there. It just it makes for better news. One of the areas where the we fall so short, of course, is in our public health policy which is you know the titanic on the rocks on fire it's awful it's awful and the way we treat children in this state the way we treat women you saw the report this week and we're in the top five Mm -hmm. for domestic abuse and one of the people that deals with the well has to deal with the outcomes of this is our good friend maria rosales lambert of oklahoma interview services welcome to the program thank you thank you for having me tell us a little bit about oklahoma interview services and why it exists Well, we started in about 2004, um, 
And the reason we started this nonprofit was because we knew that a lot of the um, services that were being provided in Oklahoma County and Tulsa County were not the same like it were in the rural areas, where we had experienced forensic interviewers actually conducting the forensic interviews of children who have an open investigation about different types of abuse. So we started this nonprofit at the time with the goal in mind to have a uh, forensic interviewing facility because there are 21 uh, child advocacy centers, locations where the children are taken to be interviewed instead of taking them to a police department or a Department of Human Services, um, interviewing them in the back of a police car at the scene or something like that. Um, but we don't have any in the western part of the state. Um, the last child advocacy center is El Reno, where they have one there, and Garfield County. They have one that sort of started, it's not accredited yet, out in Sayre, but there's really nothing in the entire western part of the state. So we have worked really hard to get this uh, a facility going. So now we have a mobile unit, forensic interviewing facility, where we provide those interviews to children out in the real, uh, rural areas, where they're not having to travel in 45 minutes to an hour to two hours to a child advocacy center. And that includes law enforcement and DHS because they're working in those areas too, out in the rural area, and they're coming in. But our purpose as a forensic interviewer is to interview children in a non-leading, non-suggestive way, uh, utilizing techniques that are research-based, they're specific, um, and can be adapted, the techniques can be adapted to the developmental level of the child. So we want to minimize the number of times that um, the kids are being interviewed. So that's what we're doing. I've got a bazillion questions for you. Okay. <laughs> well, I hope that I don't... Um, Sound like Scott um, just defined. Don't wilt <laughs> under the pressure. He's really harmless. <laughs> no, the next segment's going to be very interesting. It will be. We'll be back at Camps 1910 with Aaron Brielbeck, John Halsey, and Maria Rosales Lambert. You're going to want to listen to this. It gets real in here in a minute or two. Be right back. Mitchell in the morning, now available on your iHeartRadio app or the old fashioned way at News Talk 1520 KOKC. You're listening to the strongest station on the dial. News Talk 1520 KOKC. And we're back at Camps 1910 with John Halsey, Maria Rosales Lambert of Oklahoma Interview Services, and Mr. Brailbeck. Good morning to all of our listeners. Follow us on Twitter at Mitchell Talks and like us on Facebook, Mitchell in the Morning. So, Mr. Brubeck said, I've got a bazillion questions. The floor is all yours, Your Honor. I came up with a bazillion and four now, so we've got a few more. Uh, I was, that was real impressive, the way the bus is set up. Uh, Joey? Joey. Joey the Yes, bus. we named it Joey. The, the Bounder uh, logo is a baby kangaroo. And in Australia, apparently, a male baby kangaroo. Is They're Joey? called Joey. So we named it Joey. Why... Why do we not have enough services the entire western half of the state? You showed me the map. There's just nothing there. There's nothing there. Um, you know, that particular area, they do not have, I don't say enough cases, because it's not so much that they don't have the cases. Maybe they're not as many reported. And to have the child advocacy centers, you can only have one per DA district. And so in those areas they have 
uh, the multidisciplinary teams, the different agencies coming together and working the cases. Um, they have, you know, done the best that they can with the resources that they have in creating the soft rooms where we can actually come in and interview the children, but they're typically at either at the police department, at the courthouse, at the DHS office, so someone that provides a space where they can, and use it for multiple purposes, not only to interview children, but to interview the adults or the suspects. So I think a lot of it has to do with lack of, of resources um, that doesn't, they just don't have the money to justify the number of cases that they actually get. They don't have the money or they don't want to allocate the money? Well, that might be the source. Um, child advocacy centers are funded through the states um, through a CAMA fund, um, and that's only if they're child advocacy centers that are accredited by the National Children's Alliance. And then the multidisciplinary teams also get some funding, and that is primarily for the purpose of training because we want the investigators, professionals that are working these cases, for them to have training to really understand and properly work um, the cases because they're very complex. When we watch TV, we'll see uh, a kid brought in who's the victim of a crime and goes to a police station and a kind and gentle police officer will talk with them for a couple of seconds, the kid opens up, the next thing you know, the case is solved. That's that's just, that's not real life. <laughs> Realistically, when you're, you're dealing with kids, you're talking about the soft rooms, for example. You bring a kid into a police station, it's extremely intimidating. You surround them with a bunch of uniformed police officers, extremely intimidating. More often than not, these children are abused by people who uh, know them and who know how to push their buttons, know how to threaten them, know how to scare them. So they're already walking in scared, and they walk into a scarier situation, and they mum right up. Talk to me about the importance of these soft rooms, about people who are trained to do really nothing but sit and talk with kids. You know, back in the 80s, we had a lot of cases nationally that went really, really bad. And because of kids being interviewed multiple times uh, with very leading and coercive type of techniques and in places like the police department. And, you know, they had folks that were convicted um, and gone to prison, and then later they changed the, the, the ruling and they were let go, but after serving 10 years in prison. So it affects the children, it affects individuals um, that, that might be innocent, uh, that are being accused of, of certain things. The thing is that children, you know, need to have the best place to be able to tell the story. We want to reduce their anxiety. We want to reduce their trauma. We want to make them feel like we cared about them and that we want to listen to them. And it starts by the place that we're bringing them to give their story. And you're right. People do threaten the children um, that they're going to be taking, that they're in trouble, uh, what's going to happen to them. So they come in, and you're right. They go, mom's the word. They're not going to talk. Um, and a lot of the, our law enforcement folks, some of them are trained to do interviews and some of them are not. They're trained to interview suspects and adult victims, not children. Um, so we really want to have that trained individual really thinking about not only 
uh, gathering the information from the child and gathering the details for the investigation, but also attending to the child's comfort. And it starts with the setting. Um, even when kids are being interviewed at schools, I mean, that in itself, if someone goes to a school which is child-friendly and is there, uh, then we're supposed to, um, that they get the child and go into the principal's office. Well, typically when a child goes to the principal's office, they're in, in trouble. trouble. Right. So when they're being called to the principal's office to talk about their experience that they just reported, that in itself is difficult for them. So the best thing is for when a child reports something to someone, they contact the authorities, and then from there on, uh, it gets scheduled to a child advocacy You're listening to a conversation with Maria Rosales Lambert, Oklahoma Interview Services, Aaron Brilbeck, and John Hulsey. Most people have not heard of how this works, Maria. I know. Thank you for having me. No, it's yeah, great to have me you the opportunity to talk about it. But you have... You could conceivably have children talking to a dozen law enforcement agencies, right, if you didn't do what you do. Yes, I mean, that's what we used to have. And even now, it still happens at times, I think, um, because if the child reports, let's say, to the teacher, if the teacher doesn't know what to do, they'll take the child to the counselor. Then they'll ask the child to repeat the information to the counselor. And the counselor doesn't know exactly how to handle or they are bound by policy that they have to notify the principal. Well, let's say the principal's out. Well, there's the assistant principal. So then the assistant principal gets told by the child again what happened. Um, so then the assistant principal doesn't know what to do, so they have to have the principal come in. Well, the principal doesn't want to get the information from all these adults. They want to hear it from the child. So then the child has to tell it again. So then they finally decide to call uh, DHS, as they should, uh, and it should have been done by the first teacher that got told. Um, so then the, the uh, DHS worker comes in, and they have to, by law, by policy, they have to initiate with the child and gather information. Well, then the child starts talking to them. Uh, well, law enforcement gets called at this point because the child can't go home. So... Um, law enforcement gets in, well, they want to hear it from the child as well because they don't trust the DHS worker that just tell them the information. So they want to hear it from the child. So then they have to repeat it. Well, then at the end, by the time they're calling us to get um, the child interviewed, then at this point, there's some inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. So why do you think that could be? Yeah. Is it because the child is lying? Is it because, you know, the setting that we're at at a school, at a principal's office? Is it because the child has been asked different ways by different people um, the information? And then now the child is tired of talking. So they might even get to me at that point because we do have the services, and the child may not want to talk about it. So we're still trying to educate folks of the importance of letting the child tell that adult that adult report, reports it, and then the next person that should be talking to the child should be a trained individual, be it, if, even if it is law enforcement or DHS. But once they start the interview, for them to complete it so that the child just does not have to repeat that information. How widespread is child abuse in Oklahoma? How do we compare with other states? Well, compared to other states, I think we're, we're pretty high. I don't know the, the stats in, in that. 
But I can tell you that the national statistics, including Oklahoma, is that one in every four girls, they will be sexually abused by the time they're 18, and one in every six boy. Uh, in every sec- eight seconds in the United States, there's a child being sexually abused. Now, would you be involved, will your team be involved? It seems like in the last couple of days I saw an article about a 13-year-old girl that has a child. Did you see that? I haven't seen the article, but that's something that we hear about often. Oh, it's just amazing to me. You know, behind these statistics are kids that are getting hurt, and media focuses on car wrecks. I, it's just kind of an amazing to me. We're going to learn more about Joey. I'm very fond of that name, by the way. And where you just went, Mr. Brailbeck, let's talk about domestic abuse and Spanish-speaking language. We have a whole population in the state of Spanish-speaking, and they don't get much attention here. You can even, I mean, Maria could even tell our listeners they're listening to Mitchell in the morning in Spanish. Yes, we are. Es Maria Rosales. Por favor, continue con nosotros esta mañana. And you could also tell our audience that they can follow Mitchell in the Morning at Mitchell Talks in Spanish. Sí, si nos puede continuar escuchándonos en Mitchell Talks. And how do you say Twitter in Spanish? I do not know. I don't know. I think Twitter? it is Twitter. <laughs> oh, Twitter. <laughs> El Twitter. <laughs> we'll be right back. Catch the highlights of Mitchell in the Morning. KOKCRadio.com. Oklahoma City's most powerful news station is News Talk 1520, KOKC. We just had some information passed along from our good friend, Senator A.J. Griffin. We wanted our listeners to know state law requires any adult that knows of or suspects the abuse or neglect of a child to report that to the child abuse hotline. That hotline is 1-800-522-3511. 800-522-3511. The law requires you to do it. Any sensible value would require you to do it. And then I heard Maria Rosales-Lambert, Oklahoma Interview Services. I heard of an incident the other day. A friend of mine who's filed an emergency order. A state agency was out interviewing the kids, and the perp was in the room. They have really good intention about going out and checking in with the kid, but given that scenario, if you're touching base with the child and you're asking it, or you worry about something, has something happened, is someone worried about you, what do you think the child is going to say? Nothing. Right. So then if the child doesn't say anything, then as far as they're concerned, there's nothing going on and the case is closed. So they might continue on with some of the investigation, but if the child is not making the allegation, then it's false, it's a unsubstantiated. Yeah, and that's so often the case, too, when the kids will go to court because the way our justice system works, you have the right to face your accuser. So now you're putting a, a child in a big, scary room with a lot of big, scary people looking directly into the eyes of the person who abused them. I've seen it more times than I can count where the kid just shuts right up. The kid's not going to talk. And one of the things that we are also doing with Joey, and we really want to work with prosecutors and judges to understand that it is extremely traumatic for a child to have to be in the courtroom. I totally understand about the accuser having the right to confront their accused in the court setting itself, but we're talking about a child. 
So what we have done with Joey is to provide the ability to do closed-circuit testimony where we can bring out the mobile unit, have the child while they're waiting, because sometimes it's hours that they're waiting in the courtroom, and sometimes they're crossing paths with the perpetrator's family that obviously are not very supportive of the situation and the child. Um, sometimes the courtrooms, they don't really have a appropriate area where that is child-friendly where the kids can wait. It's all for adults. So the kid, the child can be in the RV, and then once it's time to testify, we can connect the sound, the video from the RV into the courtroom so that the judge, the court reporter, and the suspect can be watching, but the prosecutor and the defense attorney can then go into our interview room and ask the child questions, do the direct and cross there. They can break and go back in and consult with their client and then come back out if they need additional questions for the child. And the child never has to go into the courtroom. But the suspect can actually be listening to what the child says. So they're getting their rights met, uh, but we're not putting that child on that stand in the courtroom where it's only for adults, not for kids. You, uh, you folks obviously have very limited resources. Much of the weight of this falls on police officers and investigators to, to sit down and talk with the kids. Without slamming anybody, rate them on a 1 to 10. How good do, do most agencies do in terms of getting onto the same level as the child, talking to the child like a child, not a suspect, and actually getting the information they need? You know, I think all the investigators do their best to try to be as gentle with the children as possible. But forensic interviewing, when you're trying to gather details from a child about a traumatic event, is really a process. It's a science. So it's not just talking to a kid like we normally do our children at home or at school or whatever. It's very specific. Uh, it's a very specific process. Like I said before, there's some um, police officers and some DHS workers that are trained forensic interviewing, and they've learned the process. But I think for most law enforcement and DHS out there, um, they don't have the training uh, and the skills to get information in a detailed wet matter from a child. They can get a lot of different information, but how you get um, details about something that has happened to them that is traumatic, that's the key. And it's a science. There's research behind it of different processes that we have to do. Um, so we really have to work at educating that if you don't have the training, then let someone else do it. 755 Maria Rosales Lambert with Oklahoma Interview Services, Aaron Brillbeck and John Hulsey. Can we talk a little bit about the Spanish-speaking population in Oklahoma? Getting the English-speaking folks to re report abuse and deal with that's tough enough, but there's a whole it's a whole different ballgame when you're talking about the Spanish-speaking population, isn't it? It is, and not only our Hispanic population in the city, but also the African-American uh, population, uh, we have a large Asian community. I've been doing forensic interviews now for 14 years, and I have yet to interview a child from an Asian descent. 
Um, so that tells you it's not that it's not happening, it's just they're not reporting. Um, very few African-American children uh, that we get that we actually interview, but yet they're the highest minority numbers that are represented in DHS. Um, our Hispanic population, there's only two bilingual forensic interviewers in the state. There's myself, and I travel throughout the state um, interviewing those Hispanic children. And then there's another forensic interviewer here in, in Oklahoma City that works at a child advocacy center. So not only that they don't report, you know, for reasons that, you know, everybody else doesn't, uh, they want to keep it in the family, they don't know what to do. But in addition to that, for our Hispanic families, um, is the fear of law enforcement and immigration. Um, and sometimes it's not that that's an issue for that particular family or the child. They might be U.S. citizens, but it could be the suspect that doesn't have documentation or, um, or it's a grandparent or whoever it is, and they have a child and they have, you know, a family here. So they rather just try to keep that child away from them and not report it because once police comes, immigration just follows right after as far as their perspective is. Um, so that's pretty scary to them. And then you, you think about also the, the language barrier is, you know, how do they report? How do they deal with it? They've been able to live in the community really well, but until something goes wrong, that's when it gets highlighted that I'm going to really struggle with the communication and, you know, really understanding the process. So it kind of makes these kids sitting ducks then. Yes, it really does. It, it, it makes it continues, you know, and, and we see it all, all the time is that, you know, a child is coming in and reporting something and we hear the mom, the aunt, the grandmother. Well, it happened to me too, but we never did anything about it. And now we have another child in the family getting victimized. So what do we do now? Because it, it's disturbing to me when you showed me that map. The entire western half of the state has nothing. Right. How do we fix this? Well, I mean, I think um, the, the mobile unit idea, I think it is um, great for the rural area because it's not highly populated. If the numbers are a little bit lower, not like in the central part of Oklahoma. So having the mobile unit, not only the forensic interviewing unit, but also having a mobile mental health uh, services where they can go to different areas or the medical as well to be able to do that. Cool. And how long have you guys had Joey? Our first case was March 9th that we got the funding last year and we finally got it on the road March 9th of this year. All right, we come back. We'll let you know what you can do to help Joey. My Joey's, I've had almost 16 years. So they're both joys. And He's great. He's great. And we'll tell you what you can do to help. And if you haven't wanted to jump off a cliff yet, maybe we'll make it a little brighter when we come back. Mitchell Morning. We're back at Camps 1910, the 8 o'clock hour. Another segment with Maria Rosales-Lambert and Aaron Brillbeck and John Halsey. Glad you're with us. If you, I just put the child abuse hotline on Twitter, which is at Mitchell Talks. And so go there. We've had a couple of questions have come along through uh, text messages and social media and the question was is does the state i mean you the state requires you to report child abuse but is the state 
required to follow up, and Senator Griffin tells me there is a process. So maybe we can talk with her about that. There's, listen, this is one, This is a very in-depth discussion we're having this morning. It's not one of these discussions. You've how many interviews have you done, Maria? In the time that you've been a forensic interviewer, how much media have you received? We've had two articles about Oklahoma interviewing services on the paper, um, but I've done 2,500 interviews. Uh, we do just myself. I'm full-time forensic interviewer. I have another lady that works with me part-time. We typically do 350 to 400 interviews a year, just ourselves. Wow. Um, I usually travel. If I'm not traveling in Joey, uh, I was typically putting in about 30,000 miles on my car every year of traveling to just different areas. And, and I'm just a interviewer that's responding to child advocacy centers where they, they have an interviewer or they might not have an interviewer. Um, that I, I, If they have an interviewer, um, I'm either covering for them because they're in training or out on sick leave or there's a conflict or something. But typically we're working out in the western part of, of Oklahoma. Um, so there's lots and lots of cases that are reported. And there's many, many more cases that are coming into the hotline, and some get assigned and some don't, some because of lack of um, information, some because it's already been reported and there's already an investigation ongoing. Um, but there's tons and tons of investigations, but not all of those investigations go into with law enforcement for criminal uh, prosecution. Are a lot of these guys walking because some of the questions that are asked and again, I, I'm not trying to bash police officers, but they can't do everything. They don't have the training to do everything. Are some people walking because the questions that are asked weren't uh, weren't asked right? Well, it's hard for me to, to know that part, but I, I do know that, um, you know, my experience as a forensic interviewer, I do hundreds and hundreds of interviews, yet I get very, very little subpoenas. Now, is it because they're not going to trial or they're pleading out? Uh, but even some of the cases that go to trial, uh, they get dismissed. Um, they get, um, you know, hung juries. Um, they get acquitted. Um, I think our public still has a hard time um, thinking that child abuse happens and really dealing with this, even if the case goes forth and they go into um, trial and they're not getting a conviction, you know, was it because there wasn't any evidence? I mean, I've had experience where they've, they've actually pulled the jury afterwards to survey them, and some of them said, well, I think something happened, and I believe the child, but I don't think it was this person. Well, they never presented evidence or any discussion that it was someone else. So, you know, is it that the investigation was poor? Is it that the jury refuses to believe that, that child abuse happens? Um, you know, who knows? But people are, you know, still abusing children out in the, out in the world. What types of questions do you ask um, that I couldn't ask because I don't have the training? How, how are you able to get a child to open up? And what things are you, how are you directing the child to say the types of things that need to be said that I just simply wouldn't know? I think what happens is is the additional follow-up questions that is the key. 
is getting those sensory types of details that really helps someone understand that this is something that the child experienced and not something that they just saw or something that someone coached them to say. It's about, um, for instance, if you ask a child, has something happened? And the child says, yes, um, you have to follow up with that. Tell me more about that. It's creating that picture with the types of questions that we're asking from the beginning to the end. And not just said, yeah, I was home and my dad touched me. Well, tell me more about that. And tell me from the beginning, the middle, and the end. What did that look like? What did that feel like? How were body positions, um, it, the feelings, all of it. Not just, oh, he touched my peepee. -pee. Well, that's not enough. If that's all you got, then, you know, we don't know. Somebody can say, well, how do we know that that really happened? But if the child starts talking about what did it felt, what did it feel like, what did it look like, even three-year-olds can tell you that they've experienced something. It might be the limited information that they can give you, but it could be something that, you know, in their own vocabulary, they can, you know, um, explain to the to our adult brain but they can give you enough information that they can see what it is let me uh, as we don't have very much time left let's talk about joey and the sort of funding you need because it looks like oklahoma interview services is doing far too much you're covering far too much ground and not enough attention to what's going on what can people do what can oklahomans do to help maria rosales lambert at oklahoma interview services well it's about providing uh, support, financial support. Um, one is you can go to our website is um, okoklahomainterviewingservices.com. You can donate there. Um, we, we're going to have a fundraiser that's coming up uh, October 21st at Wine and Palette. Uh, we also, what we're really needing is folks to, to get involved. Um, we need some board members that really would want to get involved in this organization and are connected in the community and want to do fundraising. We are looking to maybe do a uh, fundraiser next year um, that's called Pine Derby. Um, so we're get, needing folks to come on and serve as a, in the committee and kind of take different parts of it and make it a really successful type of um, fundraiser. One more time, tell us about Joey. For people that are hearing us talk about Joey, I talk about my Joey all the time. Your Joey is your truck that you, your RV. It's that an you take, RV. It's a 40-foot RV that has been remodeled. <clears throat> Excuse me. That... <clears throat> I'm sorry. I think I'm getting what you're getting, something like that. Um, it's probably pneumonia. Just push through it. Yeah. I know. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was too yeah. good. Am I going to have to faint afterwards? <laughs> um, so it's a 40-foot bounder that uh, has been redone to have an observation room for the investigators, a family room for the child, and then an interview setting where we can actually record video and audio record the interview and then just give that to law enforcement and DHS so the child's not re-interviewed again. And we can travel to them so the family is not having to travel anywhere 
um, you know, 45 minutes, an hour, two hours to a child advocacy center. Need a financial angel. We do need a financial angel because we want to grow. We want to have a medical facility that's also mobile and also a mental health service um, for the western part of Oklahoma. We're going to keep bringing this to you. We'll talk again to Maria. We'll put this information about the Joey needs on Twitter and on Facebook. And thanks for coming by, friend. Thank you. I really appreciate your having me this morning. All right. Counselor Slane joins us in a minute. We'll be right back. You're in the know when you wake up with Mitchell in the morning. News Talk 1520-KOKC. Oklahoma City's most powerful news station is News Talk 1520-KOKC. Back at camps, let's take a quick look at Jacked Up Sports. Here's our buddy, Kobe Powell. Good morning, Mr. Powell. Good morning. Yeah, we, uh, we talked earlier. There was a story about... Boone Pickens and Mike Gundy that came out yesterday where Boone was asked about uh, Mike Gundy and whether he whether he has any conversations with Mike Gundy. Um, and he said that he doesn't have conversations with Mike Gundy. He said he doesn't talk to him, that Mike Gundy gets, Mike Gundy gets angry about things and he's not very good with people, relationships. So this is something to keep an eye on for Oklahoma State fans, the relationship between Mike Gundy and Boone Pickens because Boone Pickens does have a say in the decisions that are made at Oklahoma State. Being a mega donor, being such close friends with Mike Holder, he has a say in what goes on up there. And success can can fend these things off for a while, these conversations off and all this uh, these disagreements and, and people not liking each other. When you're having success and you're winning, those things aren't a problem. But when you start losing games and you start to no longer have success, they become a problem. So there's a lot on the line this season for Oklahoma State. Uh, Oklahoma State needs to beat Texas this Saturday to go to 3-2 and two because after this game against Texas, the schedule lightens up a little bit with Iowa State and Kansas and then West Virginia at home the following week. So if Oklahoma State could beat Texas on Saturday, then that would put them at 3-2, and two, a chance to go to 5-2 and two with wins over Iowa State and Kansas. And then they've got West Virginia at home, and if they could beat West Virginia at home, all of a sudden they're 6-2 and two, and things don't look so dire this season. So this is a big game for Oklahoma State. Saturday could potentially be a turning point in the season. So we'll keep an eye on that. Oklahoma and TCU play at 4 o'clock. I love Oklahoma in this game. Last year after they lost to Texas, they went and beat Kansas State 55 to nothing. I don't think it'll be quite that bad at TCU. Probably a two-touchdown victory, something in that area for Oklahoma. TCU is not what they were billed to be before the season. Their defense is not nearly as good as it's been in the past. And Kenny Hill is erratic with the ball, throws too many interceptions. So, Scott, I like Oklahoma against TCU on Saturday to kind of get their season turned around. The Big 12 is, is a weak conference. It's a joke of a conference. Um, and Oklahoma should be able to win it. I don't think there's anyone else in the conference who's on the same level as a 1-2 and two Sooners team. All right, Mr. Powell. Thanks very much for that. We're back at Camps 1910 couple of big stories uh, that are out this morning and we bring on counselor in just a few minutes do we have the convention center uh, piece ready to go mr powell yes all right it's interesting there was a big decision of course we had mike mize on a little earlier in the program the um, as mr mize explained it the convention hotel is not a maps project per se but the oklahoma city council approved that hotel the convention hotel yesterday they've named a winner 
And here was News 9's story about the new convention hotel. It was down to Marriott and Omni. The city's selection committee met with both developers last week, and the unanimous choice was Omni. Now, here are the highlights of the Omni proposal. The hotel would have 600 rooms and slightly more than 50,000 square feet of ballroom and meeting space. There would be 16,000 square feet of restaurant space accommodating six different restaurants. Total cost is expected to be $235.5 million, with Omni asking the city to contribute $85 million of that. That's slightly more than a third. Now, by way of comparison, the Marriott developers were asking for $105 million from the city, 42% of their total cost of $248 million. Now, the convention center itself, one of the MAPS-3 projects, is budgeted at $288 million. And these are the uh, latest images of what this 550,000-square-foot facility could look like sitting there on the south edge of downtown. Construction is expected to begin next year with the goal of a 2020 opening. So now the city manager and the head of the Urban Renewal Authority sit down with the Omni Hotel folks and try to work out all the specifics, which will include exactly how the city would fund its portion of the construction cost, maybe through existing hotel taxes or perhaps increases in those taxes. They expect to be back before council with a final development and funding plan in November. And so that's Alex's report. Now it's starting to come together really quickly. And the other story that we haven't talked about yet this morning, we'll be touching on, of course, is the visit to Tulsa yesterday by the Reverend Al Sharpton. Marty Casper with News on 6 was there. Oh, that's right, Lori. The passion here was overflowing. The desire to find common ground evident, but now they want you to join their cause. Hands up! Don't shoot! Hands up! Don't shoot! We don't want to fight no war. We want peace. We just want what's right, you know, be treated equal. People here say they are fed up with black men being labeled as big bad dudes. He's black. Does he deserve to die because he's a big black guy? Reverend Al Sharpton telling supporters. Saying he looks like a bad dude. There's a problem, and we need to deal with that problem. A problem he thinks Tulsa can lead the country in solving. Can the people of Tulsa teach the country something? I think they can if they step up and use this situation to make it a teaching moment. That's what protesters like TKO Capone are hoping to do. It's going to take all of us collectively standing up, being together. Capone himself telling Sharpton he will keep the cause going. You're an inspiration to me. As a, as a black you carry it on. you got to keep it going, bro. Most definitely. Most How does a guy like him make other people believe? By standing up and doing what he's doing. I mean, let me tell you something. This is a generational struggle to all of us get free. We may have different tactics. We may have different places we come from, but we all end up in the same place. That's why I commended the young activists. We're here to support them, not supplant them, because this is a people's movement. And if he keeps standing, they will stand with him. Bless you again, brother. God bless you too, brother. All right. As I mentioned, I'll And that was Marty Casper, News on 6, joined right now by Councillor David Slane. What have you heard from Tulsa today? Well, uh, more of the same, uh, continuing to call for uh, full disclosure of everything. Uh, uh, I think that people are now uh, moving past the, the initial shock value and making people aware of the problem, and I think they're going to now start focusing and bracing for uh, a judicial fight. Uh, one which many blacks, of course, as you know, don't trust. They've seen too many times 
white juries and black juries too, but juries come back and find people not guilty. I think they're also hoping to see what comes out of the U.S. Uh, Justice Department investigation, which is an independent investigation there as well. Uh, and we got some news yesterday <clears throat> that the uh, uh, Officer Shelby's family has now hired a public relations firm to come in and manage the public relations uh, so that they can put a nice uh, uh, spin on everything that's happening so that she won't look like she did anything wrong. So we'll have to see how good the public relations firm is. Uh, generally, they're not worth the price of the dynamite to blow them up. And then rule number one, if you're getting some public relations advice, don't let people know. We'll be back. We'll get caught up with Councilor David Slane. Also, some news from San Diego. We'll be right back. Never a shortage of opinions. You're waking up with Mitchell in the morning. News Talk 1520 KOKC. You're listening to the strongest station on the dial. News Talk 1520 KOKC. We're back our last half hour at Camps 1910. Interesting of note that the speaker at the Bradley breakfast this morning was Police Chief Bill City. You may remember that I think last Friday we had Sergeant Martin Nelson, who is with the Oklahoma City Fraternal Order of Police. He had mentioned on this body cam issue that they had made a proposal. They're waiting uh, back from the city. That was his report. What are you hearing, Councillor Slain, about body cams in Oklahoma City? Well, I'm hearing that uh, that the city had gone forward with it. The union stopped it, uh, uh, believed that it violated some contract provision, and I don't know what their collective bargaining agreement is. I have not seen it. Uh, I know that uh, I know Garland Pruitt gave them two weeks before they start protesting the FOP. So I know I think he did that last week, so I guess they got another week left, although he said on the air the other day when he was on with us that they had sent him a message he wanted to meet and said he'd been trying to meet with them for two years, so he was surprised to get the message. So... I don't know. I mean, this is what I want to believe. I want to believe that the city of Oklahoma City and Bill City want to get body cams there. Uh, We know over 90% of the public, the opinion polls say they should use body cams. Uh, We ought to have dash cams, body cams. Uh, I I think it protects officers as much as it does civilians. I want to believe that the FOP, uh, Sergeant Nelson and the folks over there, I want to believe that they they want to protect the officers. Uh, My initial... What I heard initially was it was an issue of they, the officers didn't want the city to be able to just check their check their video to see if they were taking too long for lunch or some kind of personnel issue, um, and that that was what the objection was. And then and there was something in the contract, and that's why they pulled them. So, I, you know, I don't know the intricate details. Uh, that uh, Sergeant Nelson said, I think he told you that they were very close, thought they could get it done. Uh, and I think what doesn't need to happen right now is I don't think third parties like me and the NAACP and other people, we don't need to get involved. At this point, we need to see what they can come up with collectively, the two of them, uh, and stay out of it. If they fail to act, then then we're going to act. I mean, I think it's important that this issue is very important, uh, and I think we'll uh, work to make it a, a, a public issue. So uh, I don't know. That's what I hear. Um, about the body cam issue, but I just say this. These body cams are game changers. I mean, if an officer says, I was in fear, a person did something, and there's a body cam on, and the person did that, it completely exonerates them. I mean, it can really clear the air. On the other hand, 
uh, if we don't have a body cam, then you're you're left with whatever cell phone video might be out there that's incomplete, dash cam video that's got bad angles. Um, and so it makes it more difficult, and I would think that officers would want it. Uh, around the country, I hear that Oklahoma is slow. Most police departments around the nation already have body cams. Uh, they've had them for years. Uh, their issue is not having the body cams. They're, they're now finding out that the officers turn the body cams off. Uh, they forget to turn them on. Uh, all those kind of things. They get the video, but then they won't release the video. Uh, so I think it's a process, and we're just going to have to wait and see exactly what develops in Oklahoma City. And, in fact, there is a discussion now that the dash cam video in Tulsa was not activated. Officer Shelby's, I heard discussions yesterday about four or five ways they're activated, but hers was not. So you can expect this is to be a, an investigation there about why not. And sounds to me like there's a lot of intricacies in these negotiations between the FOP and cities over the body cams. Well, I think there is, and, and there should be. Listen, the FOP is their, their uh, entire reason for existing is to negotiate for the benefit of the officers, period, and the discussion. So anything that's going to affect that officer, the FOP has an obligation, legally has an obligation, to negotiate the best contracts and conditions of employment. And so you can't fault them. I mean, that's what they're doing. Um, the Shelby thing, I am very dismissive of the video not being on. It's been my experience that video only comes on typically whenever you engage the overhead lights because otherwise you'd be recording everything. So when they flip the switch, the video comes on. Um, if if she was really responding to an, a car that was just in the street, she might have pulled over. She may have pulled up behind it and never hit her overhead lights. On the other hand, some would say, well, she's there's a car that's blocking the road. It's a, it's a hazard. She should turn her lights on. Why didn't she do that? So, uh, you know, more, more that we'll have to wait and see what comes out. Um, so we'll have to see how that that turns out but 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 i certainly believe that there is a real possibility that if she didn't engage her lights that would be standard procedure Uh, and i'm not trying to defend officer shelby don't get me wrong Uh, but i believe in you know you asked me a question and i think the listeners have a right to hear what i think is an honest answer and i think that is probably an honest answer so you don't see anything sinister in the fact that those no question about it no question about it uh i've done i don't know thousands of criminal cases and almost almost 100% of the time they're engaged because the overhead lights are engaged. Uh, OHP uh, here in, in Oklahoma, that's the trigger. Uh, so, I, no, I'm not alarmed about that at all. And I wouldn't think that that's some sort of a conspiracy thing. Uh, I know others might want to make it that way. But I, just, I dismiss it, but not because I don't think somebody could be playing games. I just don't, I just don't buy that. I mean... She probably didn't put her uniform on that day saying, you know, I'm going to go kill a black man today. She didn't probably respond to that call thinking I'm going to have an, en- an encounter with a black man and I'm going to k- shoot and kill him. Uh, I'm going to react or overreact and get charged with a manslaughter. She didn't. I, I, I just don't believe that. I believe that, you know, she may have had a lack of training. She may have had, you know, a fear or a perception that, you know, she shouldn't have had and, and overreacted. I mean, those are all speculations. But uh you know, it's it, what I do know is this, is that she shot and killed a man. She's going to go on trial for manslaughter in the first degree. It carries four years to life in prison, and it's an 85% crime. And I know there's a dead African-American male, unarmed, and that's the basic facts. Now, everything else, we're just going to have to wait to trickle out. David Slane's our guest. We're at Camps 1910, Mitchell in the morning on KOKC. What do you hear about this PR firm? 
hired by the Shelby family, right, yeah, to, yeah. to do spin? Yeah. Yeah. My understanding is the, the word that I've got. And, of course, you know, when you're on the ground in Tulsa and other places and these things happen, you know, I, um, you, know you, you, you pick up things. And the word was that uh, there had been a public relations firm hired that would help put a spin on the self-defense uh, theory. Uh, so that she would not uh, have have this terrible public perception. And um, they were going to clean it up, is what I heard, that they had been hired to come in and clean it up. So, you know, and that may very well be true. Uh, public relations people, or some of them, are very good at what they do. And so, you know, we'll have to wait and see, uh, you know, and, and see what they say. Now, we're going to have, you know, we had a fact checker. On the, on the presidential debate, if we get a public relations firm in there, we're going to have us a fact checker. And when they get out of line with the facts, we're going to go down there and hold another press conference. And we're going to march again. So, you know, when they try to clean it up, we're going to point out if it's not true. Uh, but what I, what I do want to say is this. I'm a lawyer, and I've been a lawyer for almost 25 years. I believe in the justice system. I believe people are innocent until proven guilty. Uh, the video is very damning to Officer Shelby. Uh, so far, she spent a little bit less than 20 minutes in the Tulsa County Jail. Uh, and so, you know, it may very well be that a jury will look at this case and find that she's not guilty. And so we need to remember that she is entitled to a good defense. She's entitled to the best defense that can be put on for her. And they have to prove her guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And while some of my friends are already ready to, to judge her based on the video, it doesn't work like that. And so I caution everybody to take a deep breath. Let the process take, go forward, um, and let's treat this woman fairly. We shouldn't condemn her in the public. I, I think she's she's losing in the court of public opinion. Uh, but what really matters is what happens in the court of law, and we'll have to wait and see how that goes. You know what? The um, the American Bar Association, the Oakland Bar Association, are very strict about what lawyers can say, especially when you're talking to a potential jury pool. And the first rule would be not to be telling people you have a public relations firm. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Yeah. And you're already behind the eight ball if you're trying to clean things up. Now people hear there's spin. You've got some of these PR firms, you got to put their egos in check. To be advising somebody is one thing, but to be letting everybody know that you're advised. Now everything that comes out of the lawyer, everything that comes from her camp is now suspect that they're trying to clean it up, burnish it up because they're worried about a jury pool. That's right. And. Well, and probably the best news for Tulsa and Officer Shelby is that we now have the latest shooting in San Diego. And so the attention of the nation will now go to another unarmed black man that was shot just in a server outside of San Diego yesterday. There's some video. When we come back, you can see it. But that's probably the best news for Tulsa. They'll get a break, and the national media will run to the next shooting and killing. Latest shiny thing. We'll be right back. Shaping Oklahoma's future. This is Mitchell in the Morning. News Talk 1520 KOKC. Oklahoma City's most powerful news station is News Talk 1520 KOKC. Back for our final segment. We I did indeed find uh, after a Google search, Channel 8 in Tulsa says they've hired a PR firm, but they don't name the PR firm. Yeah. It's the lawyers that did that. That's look, that's not a wise thing to do. Well, remember this, lawyers are the agent of the, of the client, and lawyers don't spend their own money on public relations. Clients do, and uh, they obviously believe they have a public perception problem or they wouldn't have a public relations managing firm to come in. So, they, you know, they're, they're, uh, 
you know, they're uh, they're trying to clean it up. And, uh, and, and let's say clean it up. Let's just say they're trying to put her best foot forward. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but obviously they realize there's a problem. And, and these public relations people are going to try to manage things. So we'll have to wait and see how it comes out. But like I say, I think probably the best thing for Tulsa right now and Officer Shelby is that we now have another shooting in San Diego, suburb. All right, I think this is the CBS, uh, I, sorry, the NBC affiliate out in uh, San Diego. Kobe, if we could play that uh, story that the San Diego TV station did yesterday. That's right. Mark, uh, the focus of the investigation right now is on this piece of videotape that was shot on a cellular phone by the drive through worker here at Pancho's Mexican Restaurant. She was in the drive through at the time of the shooting. The shooting takes place right in front of her on the other side of the building, and she videotaped the whole thing. She voluntarily surrendered her cellular phone to police, we're being told. Uh, uh, El Cajon Lieutenant uh, tells me uh, that she they're looking at the videotape now. Uh, also telling us that that videotape at some point in this investigation will be released. We spoke with another worker here at the restaurant, the manager, who tells us that on the videotape, you see the suspect refusing to remove his hands from his side, uh, uh, disobeying the police, uh, uh, as she described it, and as a result, and in, in the process, uh, he, he kept them right at his hip, police asking him to show them their hands, telling uh, on the videotape uh, indicated that he did not, uh, and uh, and he was shot uh, directly afterward, according to uh, an eyewitness. We're getting a different account uh, from eyewitness Michael Ray Rodriguez. Michael Ray Rodriguez was with his wife just leaving um, a, a business that he was uh, selling sweepers, uh, sweeper systems at, in his car, and the whole thing unfolded in front of him. He tells us uh, that there were two police officers holding the suspect at gunpoint. A third showed up that the suspect was actually terrified with his hands in the air. This is what somebody had to say. He didn't have a shirt on. So as I see him like this, another cop comes. Now he's blocked in three ways. He has nowhere to run. He's scared. He runs to the right. As he runs to the right, five shots. Boom, 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 boom. Body down. All right, so um, this is a, a different description than what we're getting from those who saw the cellular phone video. But Michael Rodriguez tells me that he thinks he came in kind of the middle of this, not at the beginning, uh, and just saw the middle and then saw the end. So there's the videotape. Uh, there's uh, Michael Ray Rodriguez uh, as an eyewitness. And one other eyewitness, the suspect's sister, we know her as Sarah. She indicated that her brother was not showing his hands, that she was encouraging him to uh, to uh, do what police tell him to do, and it was because that he, he didn't uh, that he was shot. So all of these eyewitness accounts, a videotape, there's a lot to get through, but certainly there's a very good opportunity uh, for investigators to get a clear picture of what happened. Reporting live in El Cajon, I'm Dave Summers, NBC7. Well, and as that... Uh developed uh, Scott yesterday last night uh, we found now that this uh, african-american male was in fact unarmed uh, we know that a call was placed to the police uh, by uh, his family member who said that he was mentally ill that she called would you please come help us uh, and within two or three minutes they say he was in the road that he was a threat to himself and others uh, apparently he pulled his hands out of his pocket they uh, mistook whatever he had in his hand as uh, a weapon and so as a result of that uh, they shot him so you know uh, like I say 
it's another shooting, and I suspect by the time I go come back on with you, there'll be another African American unarmed male killed in the streets by another police officer. It, it, it's it, we have to deal with the problem, and the problem is training. Uh, the problem is that we need to have these body cams so we can know exactly what happens, uh, and and I think we need training on de-escalation. Uh, and I think officers need to feel safe, too. I mean, I, I'm not suggesting that they not protect themselves, but in all of these cases, we're seeing unarmed black males. And the one where they're saying there was a weapon, they don't have any video of him having the weapon. And now I'm hearing rumors in the African-American community that they believe when the sister left to go charge her phone that the police may have planted the drug, I mean the gun, uh, there, uh, and that's where the gun came from. So there may be there, – there, there's a – out there people saying that as soon as one of the eyewitnesses closest to it they tape it off nobody can be around and then there's a throwdown gun i don't know if that's true or not uh, but we know that all the video and all the photographs show that he didn't have the gun in his hand so you know it, it's a it's a tough deal and uh i think we just have to keep it vigilant and i don't mean to come on your show and talk about this, this is not what i consumes my whole day but the reality is is that we got a serious problem we have a racial problem in america we have a policing problem in America. Uh, we have a use of force violence problem in America. We have officers that are put, you know, in danger every day. They're on the streets. Policemen, I believe most policemen are good, and they care, and they're there to protect us and serve us. And I think most of them do. Uh, but, you know, you get these isolated incidents, and, you know, they're not so isolated when they happen day after day after day. It becomes systemic. The most common response I've heard from Having, oh, it, I think Garland has been on three times. We did a hot seat with Garland the other day. The most common reply that I get from people who are upset with what's happening, think things are wrong, but a lot of people are saying to me, virtually all these cases, it's from resisting arrest. Now, we've heard Garland did a great job explaining to me what it's like to be African-American when those red and blue lights come up behind you. But you've seen these over and over again, and people are saying, yeah, but if you just don't resist arrest, and it happens so many times, what do you, how do you respond to that? Well, um, it's, it, it, there is a component in here that uh, the person doesn't obey a command. Uh, what do you think the punishment should be for that? Death? No. I mean, no. I, I don't remove my hands fast enough. I don't remove them at all. Uh, you got sirens going on. You got policemen there. They're, they've got guns pointed at you. I mean, I don't know how I would react. People react differently. And they're probably frozen in many cases. Sometimes, let's be honest, some of them are mentally ill, some of them on drugs. Um, so, okay, they didn't comply. So we just shoot and kill them like a dog? I mean, is that what we're going to do? Or should the police be trained on how to deal with that? We know at least in Tulsa the man had his hands up from the video. Uh, obviously, he may not be doing exactly as they're telling him, but he doesn't appear to be moving aggressively towards them. Um, so, you know, my answer is absolutely, you're right. People need to comply. As a matter of fact, I travel from church to church and groups and talk to young people about the fact that when they encounter the police, how they need to act, how they should react, because it could be a life or death situation. And I think people do need to comply. But when they don't, we don't kill them. We just don't kill them. I mean, especially when they're unarmed. And and the other thing is you've got three or four officers there. Uh, they've got tasers, a, a level of force that's lower than deadly force. Um, so my answer to them is you may be right. They should have complied. 
let's go past that argument now. What do you do about it? I mean, are you saying that's okay? That there's a justification to kill somebody? Well, the Tulsa County District Attorney doesn't agree. He's filed charges. Yeah, and manslaughter one. So, and and uh, you know, and, and interesting. I think there may be a, a serious civil rights investigation from the Department of Justice in Tulsa. Uh, we know that uh, Danny Williams is, is is on top of that, and we'll have to see how that investigation turns out. Uh, because don't forget, there can also be a federal prosecution in addition to the state. And so many people uh, are looking at that, saying, "Well, will she be prosecuted in the state?" If she's found not guilty, will the Fed step in? I mean, and all those kind of things happen. We saw that out in California uh, where the, the officers were acquitted by a jury, but then they were all found guilty of, of civil rights violations. So we're going to have to let the process, you know, take a deep breath, let the process go forward, and we'll see how these things come out. All right. It's always good to see you, Counselor, and we'll stay on top of this story. It's, it's kind of like yesterday with the Sharpton visit, kind of like the air was out of the balloon. I mean, things have moved down the road from the previous week with the filing of the charges, and it's still very calm there. And so we'll look forward to the next chapter in the story there and the next chapter in Oklahoma City on these body camps. Well, I, I hope we do, and uh, I won't be with you next week, but I'll be back. i got some work to do, but uh, I'll see you in a couple weeks. Tomorrow, Nico Gomez and Becky Eichert, the outgoing and incoming CEO of Oklahoma Health Care Authority, join us. Dr. Gary Raskoff with the OU Health Sciences Center. We're going to learn a lot about health tomorrow. See you at 6 a.m. Bye-bye.